22. We're going to close out the uh, 22nd chapter of Matthew. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. It's kind of funny, I was thinking the other day, some of us, some, I won't say who, may be anxious to close out Matthew to get to the end so that we can go on to a new series. But I would think Jesus is probably not as anxious as we are because, you know, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And if you've read the end, well, there you go. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So they answered him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I have an important question for all of you. It's more of a longer question. It has to do with driving. How many seasons do we have in Chicago, first of all? This isn't the question. Two. Winter? What's the other one? Construction. There we go. Construction zones always take like 14 lanes of road. Maybe I'm exaggerating. We'll say two lanes of road. And at some point they say, lane ends in one mile. You need to shift over to this other lane because the lane ends in one mile. Now, my question is this, and I hope you're okay answering it with the person next to you. Which person are you? Are you the one that gets over when it says lane ends in one mile, or maybe lane ends in half a mile? Or are you the person that floors it right to the end and then sneaks in at the last second? People are laughing, going, I know which one I am, but I'm not telling you which one I'm going to. Now, let me ask you the most important question, which one is right? Me. The semi is always right. Is it the guy that merges early and gets in line because that's the safest thing to do? Or is it the person that waits until the last second and slides in? Which one is the better way to go? How many people think it's the guy who slides in early is probably the better way to go, like you, you merge earlier? How many think it's the guy at the last second? Scientifically speaking, putting all of your preconceived... By the way, about two-thirds of you said uh, that it was the guy who merges early. About a third of you, uh, about a quarter of you said it's the guy who jumps in at the last second, and a handful of you are too embarrassed to vote, Okay. Scientifically speaking, study has been done in Virginia Department of Transportation, University of Illinois, uh, Florida Department of Transportation, uh, California, uh, Berkeley, California Department of Transportation, all throughout the United States, and they've all come to the same conclusion. That guy in the right lane that jumps in in the last minute, he's the one who's got it right. The guy in the left lane's got it partially right in that at some point you have to safely get over there. But they say that if you use both lanes all the way up until the last minute, and this guy that's got the lane would just let one person in, and the next guy behind him let one person in, that would be the most efficient form of transportation, and everybody would get... <laughs> they don't deserve to be like... And therein, lies, and therein lies the problem, is that... For years, we've been taught one thing, and because we believe that one thing over and over and over and over again, 
given new evidence, even if it's factual evidence, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to agree. It may mean we argue, it may mean we ignore and do what we're going to do anyhow, but it doesn't necessarily mean we agree. A modern car can go 5,000, 7,000, 10,000 miles between oil changes. But I talked to more than one person that when it hits 3,000, they drive in, they don't care. It's just, it's going to get done because that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, you can go on and on in, in life and see where, I, just before the service, we were standing out there and I heard all of these different conversations going around, around suntan lotion and, um, and sunburns and blotching and everything. And I was tallying up the number of things that I heard that science has already proven wrong, but people still believe. I'm not going to go into what they were. But we get these ideas, these thoughts, and we're like, we're sure this is the right thing to do. We're just going to do it this way. And yet, sometimes we're not always right. But to say we're wrong means to go against every fiber of everything we've known our entire life. Now, what's that have to do with today's sermon? Well, Jesus, in this passage, and I'll get to the background on it a little bit later, but he quotes from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 for a lot of us, we, th we think of uh, Isaiah 53 as, as a prophecy about a uh, about, uh, Savior, and we'll talk about that again later. But most Christians, if you say what Old Testament passages prophesy about the coming Savior, a lot of them will come to Isaiah 53 right away, because it, it, it speaks to wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. All of these terms we've come to know. But for the Jewish believers of that day and even years later, Psalm 110 was the pointing forward to the Messiah. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm of the entire New Testament. No psalm was quoted more than Psalm 110 in the New Testament. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and Lord in that first one is, is in all caps, that lets us know that they're talking about God. That's, that's the word for God in the Jewish language that wouldn't have even been spoken out loud. So we're talking about God in heaven. The God in heaven says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then down in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on, this day, on the day of his wrath. And so, so Psalm 110 is what they've always hung their hat on to say this is what a Messiah is going to be. This is who the Messiah is going to be. So why does Jesus bring that up right now? Why does Jesus bring up the question of who the Messiah is to this group of teachers, to this group of Pharisees? Remember the background. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's really in the final phase of his ministries. He marches closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's been healing. He's been teaching. He's been proclaiming the truth about the coming kingdom of God. And when Jesus quotes this passage, he's agreeing with, declaring, and proclaiming that the Messiah is coming to be the ultimate king. And everybody who was around when he spoke this understood what was being said at that moment. He's acknowledging by quoting the passage that the Messiah is coming from the line of David. So far, Jesus is in full agreement with well-established theology. But then Jesus asks the question, if the Messiah is from David's line, how then does David call his own son by lineage, his great-great-grandson, so to speak, Lord? Because in those days, the elder in the household ruled over the rest of the household. 
there isn't a scenario where the child rules over the father. That's why in the prodigal son, he doesn't say, let me run the show. He says, give me my inheritance so I can leave because I don't want to be under your lordship anymore and I know you won't be under my lordship, so I have to leave. And so there's no concept in there of David having an offspring who he would call Lord but that first verse says, the Lord says, and this is David talking, the Lord says to my Lord. And Jesus says, how can that be? How could someone not yet born be acknowledged by David and by the God of the universe to be the person in authority? How could the Lord call a son of David, David's Lord? I think Jesus asked that question because of the question that must be answered because it's at the heart of the question. Because at the heart of the question is the answer of who the Messiah really is. As I said, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. And these are people who already know who the Messiah is in their mind. They already have a perception. They've been taught for generations that the Messiah is going to be this great ruler king who comes from the line of David. It says right there in the passage, he's going to sit at the right hand of God and his enemies are going to be under his feet. They already know what the king looks like. Well, what do we know about the line of David and of David himself? We know David was a king. We know David was a warrior king. He'd known battle. He truly had gone where angels feared to tread because David knew he had the strength of the Lord on his side. And David commanded a powerful earthly kingdom. He was a leader of God's people here on earth. He was a rich man. He had a vast palace with servants and a family. So what does it mean to call Jesus the son of David? That's a term that Matthew used ten times in his gospel. Mark used it once or twice himself. People would say, Son of David, have mercy on me. That is a very politically charged title. Yes, he comes through the line of David. Matthew made that very clear. But to call him Son of David is to start to foreshadow into who Jesus really is. The messianic hope of many would be that the Messiah would come and be the Messiah and reign forever. But that's where things start to diverge. Because for the Jewish nation, that Messiah was coming to restore the Davidic kingdom of Israel, and they would once again be a sovereign nation. And there'd be a king just like David on the throne with the anointing of God. It was believed that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And so Jesus says, why do the teachers say that the Messiah is the son of David? How can the Messiah be a descendant of King David if King David is calling him Lord? From the, like I said, from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented in that lineage. But look at Jesus. Jesus, this single man, no place to lay his head, ragtag bunch of followers. I mean, Peter wielded a sword once, see how well that went, he cut a guy's ear off. And it wasn't even a good shot, who knows what he was aiming for when he hit it. The rest of them run away when there's a fight going on. They've never seen any combat whatsoever, except for maybe hooking a big fish. This is not the commander of an army, is it? He's not in a palace. He's not in leadership. He's not sitting with the governor of the area and arguing politics. He's never been asked to be interviewed by some political show or anything like that. Jesus is, in all many ways, very unassuming if it weren't for how strongly he teaches from God's word, if it weren't for how he's seen in the temple courts. But other aspects of him just don't scream, this is somebody from the line of David. How can Jesus lord over the might of David or his line 
if he shows no aspects in military or politics. In fact, when we do see Jesus lead, how does he lead? He says, go find those people some, something to eat. We need to find, the, find these people something to eat. He casts out demons, but he does it in a way of love. He asks people tough questions like, do you want to get well? But none of it is David uh, is really jumping to the front of that. And so Jesus is asking the question, when you look at this Messiah, and you say the Messiah has got to look like David, then how is it that David is going to be the one reporting to the Messiah? Jesus was misunderstood by most before the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus was killed because he was thought to be reestablishing the kingdom of Israel. He wasn't expected to be establishing a different kind of kingdom. The people's Messiah would be one that saved them from Rome. Remember, the Jewish leaders, as they bring him forward to be crucified, or actually want him to be crucified because he's not the kind of king they expect to see. He doesn't fit their preconceived notions. And so they work with the leadership of Rome and get it in Rome's head that he is going to try and establish the Davidic line again. And if he does that, they're going to try and overthrow Rome. And all of that has to come together, a preconceived idea about what a king is and being wrong, and a preconceived idea on what the kingdom is and being wrong there. And those two, two things come together to lead to the crucifixion. But notice in this passage, Jesus does not deny that the Messiah would come from the line of David. He's simply saying, you haven't interpreted it 100% correct. It's not that you're wrong. It's that your version of a Messiah is inadequate. It's not quite there yet. Jesus is challenging them, and I think he still challenges us to this day, of what and who the Messiah is. He is revealing that the Messiah is both God and man. He's revealing that he is the conquering Messiah, but not in the political or cultural sense, being the one who's going to be triumphant. Like I said, let's talk about this in context. This is Passion Week, probably the Tuesday before his crucifixion. The passage finds Jesus in the temple talking about God's word. They've been asking Jesus all these questions to trip him up and dismantle his, his ministry. They ask him about money and Caesar. They ask him about marriage. They ask him about greatest commandments. Every step of the way knowing we've got him hooked now. We work with this question. There is no way to wiggle out of this question. He's either got to agree with us and we're right and everything's fine. Or he's got to disagree with us and blaspheme God's word and we can kick him out. And there's a common thread that runs through every piece of those things, which is said, you think you understand the law, but you've chosen a portion of the law. Let me bring to you the entire law and see what it has to say. And in every situation, when it was talking about the money and the render to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Jesus says, that's not my problem. When it talks about marriage, he's saying, you don't even understand what the life after this world looks like. And when he talks about the greatest commandment, they say, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. They're like, yes, yes, we get it. And he goes, but you shouldn't have stopped reading in Leviticus because you keep going on you're going to find that God also calls you and I to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then we can go into the who is my neighbor. And all of it really is expanding our notion of who God is and who God is in your life, who God is in my life, and who God is in this world, who God is in the church. He's not adding to it. He's not changing it. He's not doing anything that could be considered heresy. He's simply saying, you stop too soon. You didn't get the full message of what God wanted to do in your heart and your life 
and in the life of the uh, Jewish nation. And every time you ask me a question, I will be happy to help you clarify that misunderstanding. Now, I have no idea how many minds he changed in those arguments, but I do know they ran out of questions to ask because they just couldn't get there. So Jesus, after they've stopped asking, asks his own question. Who do you say the Messiah is? Because in that moment, now they have this thing they just kept tiptoeing around, not wanting to address directly, which is, Jesus, you scare us a little bit. You teach different. You've got a large follower of cr uh, crowd of followers. They're believing more and more. We're afraid you're going to overthrow our authority. We're afraid you may think you're the Messiah. We've seen Messiahs come and go in the past that were false Messiahs. We see you as another one. And so Jesus cuts through all of that and says, let's not talk about what I think about a Messiah. Let's not talk about um, my believers and what they, who they think I am. I did that with Peter back a few chapters ago and told Peter, people aren't ready to hear it from us yet. I want to know from you, who is the Messiah? Do you see the, how this question gets to the heart of what people believe about the identity of Christ? For Jesus, this isn't just a, a theological exercise. This is, this is a question of who these people are. Who do you say the Messiah is? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you believe? I can't help but look at this and say, Jesus is asking you and I the same question. Who you and I understand the Messiah to be makes a difference, all the difference, in my response to him. As I said, the teachers of the law came with preconceived notions of the Messiah, and those preconceived notions made them look right past Jesus. He may be a smart teacher, and he may even be able to perform some miracles, but I've never seen a sword in Jesus' hand. I've never seen him challenge Roman authorities. No, he may be smart, but he's no savior. They had centuries of belief telling them who the Messiah is, and Jesus just didn't fit the picture. I wonder if sometimes I do that with him. I've got a belief in God or how he acts, and my belief was simply wrong. The Jewish leadership of the Messiah was to be King David 2.0. Much like David, but stronger, faster, less flaws. A new and improved king. All throughout history, we have misunderstandings of who we believe or what we believe is possible. I think I've shared this before, but do you know who invented the computer mouse? What company put out the computer mouse? Just guess. Xerox. Yep. And Xerox got a guy from a guy in Berkeley in the 60s. Before I was born, the computer mouse was born. Some of you guys are like, yo, no big deal. Before I was born, the computer mouse was born too. But I'm old. Um, so he, he invents this computer mouse, and he sells the concept to Xerox. And Xerox likes the idea of it, and they're like, oh, you move this thing, and this thing goes all around the screen? Let's do that to drag paper copies from one folder to the other so the copier happens faster and quicker and stuff. And they were like, that's a lot of money to just basically make copies happen faster. Young guy from Palo Alto with a new startup called Steve Jobs shows up. He offers them a million dollars in equity in his new company if they'll let him see behind the curtain. And they basically hand him everything. And there's a leader in there who says, don't give him this, you're giving him the world. And they're like, we don't see any future in it. The fact that I could just drag a folder over from here to here and make copies faster, what, what does that matter? They were still thinking in the old way. Steve Jobs could see the new way, and the computer was born. If you asked Henry Ford uh, what he thought about uh, going out and doing a focus group study 
on the horseless carriage, Henry Ford would say, if you asked the average person, all he'd say he wanted was a faster horse. Can't see beyond it. When um, the Whiting plant opened in the uh, 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, Whiting Refinery for uh, Amico, Standard Oil, they made kerosene. You know what they did with the gasoline? Dumped it into Lake Michigan as a byproduct. Until someone came along and said, hey, you know, they're making these things called horseless carriages. They run on that stuff you're throwing in the lake. And the guy who ran the whole thing at, at, at that level was like, ah, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. Nobody's going to ever be able to afford one of those things. But it got to the Rockefeller family, and they were like, stop pouring the gasoline into Lake Michigan, please. That is, that is liquid gold. But people could only see as far as what the preconceived notion in front of them of what is possible, what, what can be. These things, who's, when's the last time you made a phone call using one of these things? You know? Somebody had to see beyond just making a phone call, and it wasn't Motorola, and it wasn't Nokia, because they'd already seen what they thought was entirely possible, and they were done. And somebody will come along and do the next one. And not to harp too much on it, but my, one of my favorite ones of all time is always Montgomery Ward. Montgomery Ward and a guy named Sears and a guy, guy named Roebuck came up with the first Amazon, when you think about it. They said, people are tired of having to take a carriage to the, the, uh, uh, the wagon to the general store for a couple of days' drive to go put an order in, to go home, to come back a couple of weeks later to pick up that order. How about if we offered a service where you could look at a catalog, you could place your order, and we could cut down the amount of time it's going to take to get there. And then they did all that. And then later cars came along and they said, well, you know, we're going to also build some stores because people can drive farther now. And so they were always visionary until about the 80s. And then in the 90s, this thing called the Internet showed up, which is really just a Sears Roebuck catalog online. And the three people that missed it were Montgomery Ward, Sears, and Roebuck. They couldn't see it because their preconceived notions couldn't see what the future held. They said, why would anybody have something shipped to their home when they could just drive to the store, see it, and pick it out and buy it that day? Who would wait? And even those first ones were taking weeks and weeks, and Amazon said, we can get this to you in a day. It's breaking through all of those preconceptions to get to what is possible. If you and I are going to believe and see what God has in store for us, we have to get past the preconceived notions of years and years and years and decades of going to church, which is good, but along with the truths, it's put in some traditions that mask what's really going on. And for the Jewish people, they almost entirely missed the Messiah because of their preconceived ideas. Notice later in Psalm 110, it says, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was the only other person who was ever a king and also a priest. The priest came from, I think, the, the Levite side. And so you didn't have kings and priests. And so this passage is not only saying you're going to have a king from the line of David, but you're also going to have a king in the order of a priest. They missed that altogether because they already knew what one was supposed to look like. Years ago, I think it was in uh, 2006 or 2007, they came up with some technology that would allow you to scan things and to do 3D models of what uh, a person would look like even after they, they deceased. And so they got the Shroud of Turin and they put it on loan to this forensics groups in, in Italy. And they started putting together, based on the Shroud of Turin, what Jesus would look like. 
And they put together what, what he would have looked like at the day he died. And then they went even further and they said, we're going to put this all together and we're going to take it all the way to the point where you can see what Jesus would have looked like when he was 12 years old in the temple courts because we have the technology and we got enough information out of this. We're going to give you a 3D model of what he looks like. And I have to laugh because I've seen the picture and Jesus looks like a nice 12-year-old Italian boy. How is that possible? Because the guy that programs that stuff knows what kids are supposed to look like by looking at his own child and saying, that's what a child is supposed to look like. And so they totally missed what Jesus looked like because they're starting to create him in the image of who they believed he would be. And that's a danger all of us run. So what do we do with these competing images of a Messiah who is a son of David, but yet is also the Lord over David? Well, I think the first thing is to realize that Jesus' identity is always more than my belief says it is. As I said, it's easy to construct a Messiah in my own image. Isn't it easy to come to who Jesus is, to come to what the Bible says about him, what Jesus proclaims, and use that so that I can put together a Messiah that Bob Crane can understand? As I said, in Jesus', there was, in Jesus time, there was two different images of the Messiah. There was Psalm 110, the conquering king, the one who's going to lead us to victory in Rome and to take over and the sovereign king to rule forever. But then we also have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, a precursor to the crucifixion, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes we are, held, we are healed. The conqueror of Psalm 110, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I think as Jesus is drawing the crowds they're enjoying the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but they're being drawn because they think they're looking forward to the conqueror from Isaiah 110. And what they don't realize is that a few days from now, those who have put their hopes in the Psalm 110 Messiah, as they understand it, are going to have their, crush, their hopes crushed. When it comes to my relationship with Jesus, am I going to respond to an image of Jesus I created? Or am I willing to accept a bigger picture with all of its mystery, with all of its power, with things I don't fully understand. Can I bow to that image of Jesus? Have you whittled Jesus down to your own image? Is there any mystery that exists in him with you now? Because if there's not, you're probably looking through the lens of what you believe Jesus to be, where you think he'll show up, how you think he'll serve. Do you realize when you open the Bible and read about this man, you're looking on the face of God? I think as believers, we need to be comfortable and okay and find comfort in knowing that God is a God of mystery. We may be able to apprehend, in other words, reach out to some of God's truths, but there are truths from God we are never going to fully comprehend. And that's okay. The second thing I think we have to understand is that Jesus' work is always greater than what our belief says it is. Like I said, back then they figured the Messiah would be political. They would expect him to debate Roman governors, to, to, to fight with Caesar, to lead people of God into battle. But Jesus took time to feed people. He brought them love, hope, and healing on a very personal level. He said, if you're going to help your neighbor, make sure that the Samaritan and the Gentile are included in that. They didn't have a concept of that. Even today, we do this. I have friends who are liberation theologians, and they'll tell me how the miracles of Jesus' day were to better the lives of those without to unshackle people from the chains of social and societal wrongs, to strip away the power uh, of, of the people that oppress them, 
and to give them a better life. That was, that's how a few friends of mine talk all the time, and they think that's how Jesus should move today. And what that does is that strips away the power of the eternal life that Jesus offers to emphasize so, a social justice. Jesus. I have friends in the fundamental camp who want to make Jesus neat and clean and orderly. Blonde hair, blue eyes, a little bit long, don't like that, but we'll work that out later. They see Jesus in a church. They see Jesus in areas where they are. They see Jesus in prayer uh, groups and all those wonderful things. When I first moved to Aurora, uh, I was with a denomination that was totally abstention of drinking. No drinking whatsoever for anyone, if you were a member of the church. And so that's, that's what I embraced. And even to the point where it was hard for me to watch another believer drink, because I was like, just feels wrong. Just, just not, not quite right. You don't have to live in Aurora very long that you realize that if you're going to serve the people of Aurora, a few of them drink. A lot. And some of them do it in parks. And some of them do it at bars. And some of them do it at home. But they drink a lot. And if you are going to go see those people, you can't go to them where they drink and say, could you please stop doing that? I'll see you at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Here's a card. Come on over with me. You've got to get in there and get in where they are. And so I started going to, we, we had one we laugh about, this biker bar that I would go to a Bible study in. And when I would get home, I would have to come in through the basement garage door because there was a bathroom right there. I could get rid of all my clothes and shower right there because the tar of smoke that was through my hair was just so thick. I'd never seen anybody light a cigarette one off the other until I started doing this Bible study. And they would say crazy stuff. I mean, they were so honest. And I struggled with it at times because it was like, Jesus, do you really want me here? I mean, these guys are, you know, the answer was yes. And I remember a wonderful woman in the church where I was asking for prayer one night for that on a Wednesday night service. And she says, don't you worry that when you're coming out of that bar, someone's going to see you and they're going to wonder what you were doing in there? I said, no, nobody knows me in this town. That was my answer. <laughs> we're, we're good. <laughs> And she said, but at some point are you going to bring those people to church? And I said, I hope and I pray that they will find their way into this building, but I try and bring them to church every day when I get into that bar. That was a big step for me because I was the guy who was saying, you need to come here and do this and you need to act this way. Jesus' work is always greater than what our belief says it is. And I can almost guarantee you that all of us have some preconceived notion of how Jesus is going to serve a certain community that may not be entirely the full picture of how Jesus is going to serve a certain community. We know that Jesus did impact change. We know that he did impact the culture. We know he listed a change, but we can't limit it to the change he did on this earth. We have to talk in terms of what he wants to do for eternal life. We need to be reminded that Jesus' work came from a much deeper and broader purpose, and that is to bring glory to God, to save the lost and the bondage of sin, and to bring them to salvation, to, bring, to equip people like you and I to be salt and light. And how do we do that? We do that by acting like Jesus. We meet needs in his name. We bring the truth of salvation. We're a godly influence in, a culture, in this culture, and we bring God-honoring changes, not by our power, but by his power. We need to recognize that Jesus' way of work is much bigger than what we think. And then third, our response to Jesus can be simple, meaning not complex, 
but it must be more than my religion says it should be. What is the response of the people around this mysterious, magnificent Messiah that they don't understand? Well, the religious leaders rejected him because they couldn't wrap their heads around it. It wasn't the Messiah they knew. He didn't fit the mold. Regular people delighted in him because he loved them, because he showed them care. He was loving, and that was a breath of fresh air. Neither reaction is enough. Uh, Paul uh, uh, talks about the cross being a stumbling block to, uh, to Jews. I, th- I think it's a stumbling block to Jews, and, or embarrassment to Jews, and a stumbling block to Gentiles. Sorry. This idea that a suffering Messiah is too much for us to get past. But I can tell you that you must get past that. I work with people every day that tell me that Jesus was a great teacher, that Jesus was a really loving person, but they don't see him as Messiah. And I think C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this one man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Jesus did not leave that option open to us. The real response, the only response, is full surrender, full worship, full obedience, and full commitment. This morning, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And before we get there, I want to ask you the question. If you were to somehow take a machine and extrapolate from your heart and your mind your image of the Messiah, and put it into a 3D printer, what would it look like? Not the physical, what would he look like, like the scanner from the Shroud of Turin, but who he is to you as Messiah, as demonstrated by your actions, your heart, your obedience. What would the image of Jesus be coming out of your life? Who would that look like if I were to get into your mind and get into your heart and say, tell me who Jesus is? What would be the personality traits of that person? Because if it is anything but your Lord, your Savior, the one who takes your full commitment, then, make him, then this morning you need to make him Lord. Let him examine the areas of your life you're still hanging on to. We can't fully understand him, we can't define him, but we certainly can surrender to him. So this morning, as we take the bread and we break it, to remember Jesus' brokenness, that his body was broken for our sins. I want you to take a moment. You've got the white cards there. And you can write on there any prayer you want, and it goes into the box and the basket in the back. But I also want you to ask Jesus, take a moment and ask Jesus, what area of my life have I not surrendered to you? Surrender that to Jesus on the card this morning. And then when you're done, there's two communion stations up front, and then there's the gluten-free station in the back corner. <laughs>